Welcome to the Josh Scanlon Podcast. This episode first appeared as a video on my YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash heritage wealth planning. I hope you find it informative. Thanks. Retirees are not spending enough in retirement. Yes, you heard it here first. Retirees are not spending enough in retirement. I think the list goes on and on about articles that validate this, actually. And the other side where retirees are spending too much, we just don't, there's not, I, I, I'd love to see evidence. So if you have evidence of retirees spending too much, put it in the show notes, please. Studies that show that retirees are run out of money because they're spending too much retirement. I'd love to see that. Uh, it's got to be more than speculation. Let's see some papers on that. And I'm happy to read through them for sure, because my whole premise is that retirees don't spend enough. Uh, in fact, the problem that we have, the reason for that is everyone's so panicked about running out of money, i.e. this retirement crisis, that they stay in their crappy old job too long, and then they go into retirement like, oh, look over their shoulders, oh, I don't want to be a pauper, I don't want my kids to have to change my diaper, and so they don't enjoy their working careers, and they don't enjoy the retirement because a boogeyman is always coming out of the closet to jump on them and eat them alive. And we don't want that. We want you to enjoy your life. You only live once. Y-O-L-O. -O, you only live once. So enjoy it. All right. So let's dive into this. Smash, of course. Do that. Do me a favor. Did you smash it? Smash the like button. And then, of course, uh, put, a, um, put a comment down below. Do you think retirees are spending too much or too little in retirement? Do you say too much or too little? All right. So let's dive into this. Uh, this again from Journal for Financial Planning. I guess I already threw this one away. I was going through my litany of uh, uh, JFPs. And this one I came across from my man, Mir Statman. I'm not sure if it's Mir or Meyer. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but a uh, big fan of this guy's writing. And here he had written in the JFP, Journal for Financial Planning, uh, 2018 May, I believe, was a timeline. But all right, so he's the uh, professor of finance at Santa Clara University and the author of Finance for Normal People. Uh, his research focuses on behavioral finance. All right, so let's let's talk about this because this is uh, critical. A few months ago, I was speaking at a conference about the mental obstacles underlying the consumption gap and how financial advisors can help clients overcome them. The consumption gap is people's actual consumption and potential consumption made possible by their wealth. In a 2016 Journal for Financial Planning paper, Spending in Retirement, Determining the Consumption Gap, Chris Browning and authors found consumption gaps among people with median financial assets, not only among the wealthy, i.e. they're not spending relative to what they could that's what the consumption gap is and we know why they're doing that is because they're fearful advisor questions following my presentation were not about how to help clients find joy in spending their ample assets uh and they're on themselves or their families instead they're about the retirement crisis and the need to encourage people to save more and spend less uh, advisor questions from our man dr statman here the statman yeah statman we're not about helping clients spend more to enjoy the wealth they've been blessed with but the questions from the advisors the professionals were about the retirement crisis and how to get people to save more and spend less in truth, a drumbeat of retirement crisis, and I can only do a, a quotes on one because my other arm, as you know, is down here in my splint. So uh, the drumbeat of retirement crisis is much too loud. 
In 2017, Vanguard Research, Retirement Transitions in Four Countries by a couple of people reported that 55% of retirees believe there is a national crisis, but only 4% describe their own retirement situation as a crisis. And that just go back to the 1992 election. I'll never forget that. Clinton and the media were running hard on the greatest recession since the Great Depression. Everybody's recession. Everybody is one paycheck away from being destitute. Then if you ask people, they did surveys. Uh, no one themselves felt they were in that issue, but they thought their neighbor was. And yet the neighbor said, I'm not in that issue, but I'm worried about my neighbor. It was, it was not it's the same thing here as you know, the media. And unfortunately, the financial advisors buy this hook, line, and sinker. I don't get it, actually. It's weird. Uh, but anyway, so only 55 or 55% felt there was a retirement crisis in their countries, but only 4% actually described their own situation as that. These researchers, researchers also reported that 90% of recent retirees are able to spend freely within reason or cover needs with some discretionary spending, and only 10% said they're on a strict budget. We should distinguish among three groups. One lives in true poverty, another in self-induced poverty. I mean, I just, let's see if I can, self-induced poverty, i.e., they're so worried about running out of money, they're not spending their money, and they're living in poverty because they're afraid of the boogeyman in the closet who's going to jump on them and eat them alive. And a third lives just right, spending money but not wasting it. Advisors likely have no truly poor among clients because the poor have too little to qualify, and they're not going to pay the fee. But they have many more clients who suffer self-induced poverty. A number of advisors approached me after my presentation, tell me about widows who splurge irresponsibly soon after their husbands die and the dangers of giving adult children money without asking them to pay it back. More recently, I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal about the mental obstacles facing us as we transition from saving to spending. I've learned much from people who posted comments or sent me emails. These lessons can help advisors improve their practice, benefiting their clients and themselves. And this led me to wonder if advisors fail to see the self-induced poor because they are among them. I mean, look, he's talking to advisors who are talking to clients. I'm talking to you directly as a client, all right? I'm just talking to you directly. I'm saying, look, what is the evidence that we're running out of money? Let's see it. Where is the evidence? Where is the evidence? Where is the evidence? If you can show it to me, let's see it. But the evidence is becoming greater and greater and greater in the other end that there's this consumption gap, i.e. you're not spending enough, which your, uh, your wealth would allow you to. Uh, here's a story of a so-called splurging widow. Remember, so advisors said uh, that uh, advisors said they're telling him, this guy, about widows who splurge irresponsibly. And now our, our friend Meir or Meyer says, here's a story about a, self, a so-called splurging widow. Quote, my husband was reared by extremely thrifty parents who survived the World War II and Great Depression. And through hard work and frugality bordering on stinginess, all Christmas gifts came from the Salvation Army. Man, that, uh, eesh, I know it, man. God bless Salvation Army. I'll never forget, like, uh, it almost makes me tearful. Uh, but anyway, growing up and you know, out of freaking pot to pee, and it seemed like, and then uh, on Christmas, we'd always have these presents under the tree and I was always wondered like as I remember going every single Christmas Eve thinking we're not gonna have anything and how embarrassing it was gonna be with no toys when all my friends had toys and again we we were in a poor neighborhood in Peaks Island Maine it was all poor some were poorer than others us but uh some still at the end of the day you know you're always comparing yourself as a kid like I don't have any toys 
And I just remember going back to school shopping and whatnot. Anyway, long story short, somehow we always had Christmas presents. I'll never, and I wake up the next morning and see this, just all these freaking presents. I couldn't believe it. It's like God has spoken and uh, he allowed it to happen. And it was because of the Salvation Army and other groups like that who, uh, who took care of the poor. Now, this day and age, we go through our church. Uh, we do something, um, Toys for Tots. And nowadays, the kids don't want any of that crap. They want the money. It's actually it's completely 180 degrees difference now. And, uh, and these are supposedly, a lot of them are poor immigrants, too. They don't want the toys. They want the money, and they want the uh, gift cards and whatnot. It's actually sad. Cause I just remember growing up and thinking, just going to bed that night thinking, I hope there's a couple things underneath there. And, uh, and not only were there a couple things, it was, I mean, it wasn't the world's, you know, we didn't have the, what was it back then? Like the video game stuff or color TV or anything, but we, we had a bunch of toys that, uh, and, and presents that was shocking. And it turned out it was a Salvation Army. Our next door, our two, four, do four doors down, the dad of my best friend used to come and deliver it to us. Again, I didn't know that, but, uh, it's a it's a lesson man it's a lesson uh to give back uh, because you are affecting children as we sit here today you might not know that but a child like me i can tell you it uh the feeling of not being able to is not compete like a competition but of being left out while everybody else is opening wonderful christmas presents you ain't got nothing that's tough on a young boy and a young girl too, in particular, it's tough. And uh, then to wake up with a feeling of relief of seeing all those toys is just, I, I cannot tell you how much that was uplifting. So if you have the wherewithal, um, Salvation Army is a wonderful group to give to without question. All right. Uh, so bordering on, this is again, the widow. Uh, so through hard work and frugality bordering on stinginess, we accumulated a very comfortable nest egg or his parents did my husband's parents. Uh, they pass on to him their fiscal philosophies, and my husband absorbed them like a sponge. Uh, he handled our finances, and once he died, I took over the finances. I was amazed at how much money we had. I shall have to work very hard to spend all of it, but I plan to give my best effort. <laughs> That's freaking awesome. In the two and a half years since my husband died, I've been to Africa and made three trips to Europe. I've already booked trips to see lowland gorillas in Rwanda and Uganda, snow monkeys in Japan, penguins in Antarctica, and ride a horse across the Mongolian steppes. These trips are booked after my doctor told me that based on her patients, 80 is the age in which people lose their energy and enthusiasm for traveling. I am attempting to get in as many trips as I can before hitting that mile marker. Man, good on you, Mrs. Widow. I freaking love it. And I hope she's not against climate change uh, and CO2 because if she's flying all over the place, she's putting CO2 in the atmosphere. Oh, no. Oh, no, not CO2. <gasps> you know what I just did? I took a deep breath and I breathed out. What did I do? I just put CO2 in the atmosphere because, again, if you're a green and hate CO2, you better not be flying all over the world like this. I've also made many donations to local charities and plan to set up a trust fund for a friend's child who has Down syndrome and would otherwise become a ward of the state uh, when his hand-to-mouth ex existence parents die. My husband never reaped any benefits from his savings habits and only three months of Social Security before dying. May others escape his fate. I Freaking just blessings to you, miss. I, I don't know who this lady is. She is just a sight for Sorais. I could not be happier with what she's doing enjoying it and giving the bounty that she has been given uh, from her husband, from her self-frugality, from her husband's parents' frugality. And she's not being a miser like, you know, Scrooge McDuck. She's saying, I'm going to give it away. 
I think it's freaking awesome. She's giving away to people who are not kin to her either, a friend's grandson who's got Down syndrome. So to be not become a mental uh, ward of the state. We tackle, now going back to Meyer, Amir, we tackle the saving and spending task with the mental tools of framing, mental accounting, and self-control. We frame our money into distinct mental accounts, mainly capital and income. Oh, so right, man. Uh, and set self-control rules of savings and spending. Income includes salaries, pensions, interests, and dividends, among other income sources. Capital includes houses, bonds, stocks, and other investments. Self-control tools include automatic trans transfers from income, such as salary, to capital, such as IRAs, and automatic reinvestment of interest and dividends into mutual fund accounts, and the rule uh, of spend income but don't dip into capital. Uh, this guy, this author, is so he's on to so much good stuff. He's freaking fantastic. I'd love to see if I couldn't interview one one day, because he's he's hitting on all everything. All cylinders are firing away at full throttle. It's freaking awesome. Capital versus income, uh, uh, accumulation, not accumulation gap, consumption gap. We always talk about the accumulation gap, consumption gap. Uh, just, I love it. People who are fortunate to earn good incomes during their working years and employ these mental tools successfully accumulate substantial savings. But these useful mental tools can turn into obstacles in retirement when income diminishes and it's time to dip into your capital. One extremely wealthy man, a retired insurance company exec, wrote in my response to the Wall Street Journal article, I've struggled with boundary issues between income and capital. I've actually taken on a couple board of director assignments so that I feel justified spending for what I consider extravagant because he's spending from capital, not income. That makes him nervous. So he's got to change the mental accounting, the framework. I'm not spending from capital. I'm spending from income. Uh, however you do it, do an income annuity. In this case, he's working part-time at a board of directors to get some income so he can spend the income as opposed to capital. Self-control helps. You know, Self-control is not easy to muster, and some fail to muster it at all. Wants for spending it all today overwhelm wants for saving for tomorrow when self-control is weak. National Football League players enjoy very large income spikes that amount to substantial wealth, but wants for spending today often overwhelm wants for saving for tomorrow. Bankruptcy filings among many NFL players begin soon after the end of their careers. And I see, I, I challenged that. He didn't say specifically where he's citing that from, but I looked in the research on this and there's a union guy in 2008 who had just said in an article, a union guy represented the NFL players that a significant amount filed bankruptcy within two years after they quit playing. I, there's no other evidence of that at all, other than this one union guy. It wasn't even like the main union rep. It was just some, some work guy who said that. And ever since then, it's become a war, as if it's true. And there, I just have yet to see any evidence of that at all. That's not saying there isn't some of that. I get that. But there's no evidence to say a significant amount of NFL players go bankrupt once they leave the league. Uh, circumstances, especially poverty, can undermine self-control, breeding scarcity and narrowing options. These overload people's cognitive and emotional resources and hamper saving, job performance, and decision-making. Poverty is regularly exploited. The most profitable American credit card consumers are those on the verge of bankruptcy. Some people are savers by nature and nurture. The big five personality traits psychologists discuss are conscious. Conscious. I don't want to read. Uh, okay. Whatever. I grew up as one of nine children of Depression-era parents. They always stress education, achievement, savings, and marital happiness over satisfied urgings for uh, material things, says the retired insurance executive. 
Self-control can be excessive, though. Indeed, self-control, excessive self-control is as prevalent as insufficient self-control. Excessive self-control is evident in the tendency to spend less today than our ideal level of spending, driving tightwads to extremes beyond frugality. The prospect of spending money inflicts emotional pain on tightwads, even when it might otherwise be in their interest to spend. I've, uh, I've used this story a couple times. Let me just put myself, I'll never forget this. So I had this, uh, this, this nice lady. She was a retired teacher, husband, nice guy. They had a couple million bucks set aside. House paid off, lived in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And they weren't living much. And, uh, and I'll never forget, they'd gotten somewhat of an argument. It, they, they did it not, they didn't include, they were, it was not in front of me, but I could tell there was a level of, uh, of, uh, of just tension when they brought up uh, that they should spend more. And I remember telling the woman, and she was you know, five, six years younger than the husband, who he was a pretty big guy. I don't think he was, he's probably not even around anymore. And I remember uh, she said, yeah, whatever his name is, Charlie, he gets nervous when I buy a new pair of shoes. And I said, Charlie, she, you don't, you're, you're fine, you're fine. What's going to happen is, is that if you don't spend those pair of shoes, you're going to leave that bulk to your kids, and they're going to get hammered from the state tax in the state of New Jersey. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember. It seemed like they want to leave to, uh, I can't remember, but an inheritance tax in the state of New Jersey. And this is 10 years ago now, by the way. There's no more state tax in New Jersey and income tax. I said, you know, so spend it, enjoy it, do it while you're alive because the governor's going to get it and the government's going to get it if you don't. And uh, I'll never forget that. I could see he was just, like, he's kind of, he wasn't challenging me because he was a nice man, very good people. Um, but he had, was raised in, you know, the same thing, depression era. Parents uh, raised in Camden, New Jersey, moved to Cherry Hill to escape the crime of the 60s. And, uh, and it was just worried about running out of money. And it was just, it wasn't going to happen. And I just never forget the tension that came up about Charlie letting, you know, I don't know, Deb uh, buy a new pair of shoes. It was, uh, it was sad. I, I, when I final up with an email to kind of wrap up our conversation, I said, hey, Deb, go buy a new pair of shoes. Um, it's fine. I give you my permission. And I just always, and I never heard back from him. And I always wondered how that went over uh, with Charlie. Was he pissed off because I was, going against his authority uh to be a tightwad i don't know but i mean i just never forget that it was sad it was sad and it was not good i i'm sure it hurt the relationship uh, but the issue was they had they had more income coming in than they knew what to do with on top of the fact they had two million dollars or something like that set aside and in, in various uh retirement accounts on top of the fact they had no had no mortgage whatsoever it's crazy uh, this is interesting here. Uh, the interplay between emotion and cognition is evident in functional uh, MRIs of people who see a product fall by its price and then are asked to decide whether to buy it or not. Seeing the price causes greater activation in the brain's insula among people who decide not to buy the product than people who do. The insula being the region associated with a painful sensation such as social exclusion and disgusting odors. So when people see a price, it puts that in their what tight was essentially the shoes. It puts that in the same category in one's brain as a so being excluded socially or smelling uh, something disgusting. Another reader wrote, "What if the enjoyment is in the saving and the pain is in the spending?" And another shared, "Every so often there are articles of people who have accumulated vast wealth relative to their lifetime income." And when they pass at an old age, people find out they feel sad for them because they live so frugally and never spend it on anything. I sometimes think they're missing the point. 
the total enjoyment for that person was in the saving and living miserly and frugally and well below one's means. To a certain degree, I am that person. Back to Mir. Moreover, excessive self-control can induce people in a mindset where spending is what irresponsible people do. Reflected in this reader sentiment or statement. I'm saving now because good, admirable, upstanding people sacrifice their current standard of living to save, save, save for the future. So if you're not save, save, save in the future and you're spending the future money right now, you are not a good, admirable, upstanding person, according to that uh, logic, which is sad. We spend less as we age and die sooner than we hope. Concerned about running out of money is regularly exaggerated, inflated estimates of life expectancies. Social security tables indicate that on average, one, only one in 10 of today's 65-year-old men will survive until they're 95. Yet one reader wrote, with discoveries in biotech rolling out of labs and droves, we may have reached a technological tipping point as regarding life expectancy. I think today 60-somethings will live to 100. Easy, maybe 110, and their children will probably make it to 150. Reality, however, is still some distance away from the labs. The oldest in the world woman was an Italian who died in April at 117, uh, followed by the oldest in the world man who was an Israeli who died at 113. Moreover, older people spend less anyway, in large part because of physical limitations make them less able to spend and because they're less inclined to spend for personal reasons anyway. According to this paper, how spending declines with age and the implications for workplace pension plans, uh, spending at age 84 adjusted for inflation is 23% less than it was at 62 among college-educated American couples. Spending on movies, theater, opera, and concerts declined by more than 50% between the ages of 60 and 80. Spending on nursing aids, uh, hearing aids, nursing homes, and funeral expense, expenses increased by more than 50%. So basically it's a wash there. One reader wrote, lots of people lose a spouse and do not travel for vacation much because they're by themselves now. They have enough money, but they just do not go anywhere or do much. They have lost their best friend and have not found a second life after losing their spouse. So they sort of mope around just to not do much. It's really sad. I know a few people in the situation have tried to help, but there does not seem to be much you can do for them. We lose not only spouses, but friends. Couples we used to dine with to travel with. Same-sex individuals we used to golf or shop with. Suddenly we're left to do these things alone and not or not do them and balance while we have the resources to seek balance is important to a fulfilling spending and re or fulfilling retirement. We need not feel guilty about spending our hard-earned hard savings on ourselves. As one reader wrote, during my career, I was a very conscientious saver investor. I always maxed out my 401ks and put a large percent of my salary into deferred comp plans. I've had a difficult time changing my mindset from a saver to a spender. This article made me uh, make that mental transition. The first thing I did was go out and get fitted for a new set of ping golf clubs, and I did not feel guilty about it, he said in an explanation point. Yeah, good on him. Some people derive no pleasure from spending on themselves. Another wrote, if one has never derived pleasure from material things, why would that change in retirement? A cup of coffee or walk on the beach at dawn and I'm good to go. The physic income, psychic income from being, uh, income from being oversaved has value. I emphasize with this reader, I too like a cup of coffee and a walk on the beach, even if not at dawn, but why not share oversaved money with family the needy? Exactly. Going back to the thing with Salvation Army. One reader has learned the lesson. Oh, one reader has learned the lesson. Had wrote, "I learned from my mom that the greatest joy in life is giving to your family. She would give something to all of her six children, their spouses, their grandchildren, their great grandchildren, their spouses. St. Patrick's Day, and no reason at all. 
if you want the closest thing to eternal life, try this. And I, man, I couldn't believe. Um, uh, let's see here. All right, so better to give with a warm hand than a cold one. I See, this right here I find to be incredibly, incredibly uh, profound. Better to give with a warm hand than a cold one. One reader faulted me for failing to address uh, for failing to address preserving capital for the next generation, which is a priority for some of us old people. Why not give money to the next generation with a warm hand than a cold one? I end the story about the so-called dangers of giving adult children money without asking them to pay it back, a danger emphasized by some advisors who approached me after my conference presentation. One advisor stood aside, waiting until everybody had left, and said, I burst out crying when you said it's better to give with a cold, warm hand than a cold one. Indeed, she was crying when she spoke to me. It turned out that she had lent her son $27,000 for college tuition and now demanded that he pay her by the agreed schedule. She reasoned that by paying uh, by schedule would benefit her son, teaching him financial responsibility. But the son was now financially squeezed at the beginning of his career, lacking even money to buy his girlfriend an engagement ring. And his mother's demand soured their relationship. The mother had more than enough to forgive the loan without imposing any hardship on her and giving with a warm hand rather than a cold one. I hope this is what she did that day. I hope she shares her story and lessons with her client. This is, uh, what a great article. Better to give with a warm hand than a cold one. And I get this too. Like I'm going to, I don't know. I, look, as a financial planner, I cannot tell you how many people set up these trusts where I don't want my kids to get it till 25% when the 30, 25% when the 35, and so on and so on. I said, why? Or I don't want my kid to get it till he's 55. And I'm like, they, at 55, they usually don't need the money. They need it when they're 35. And, and then if you die and that's part of your trust, because a trust is what sets up where you're controlling it from the grave, you're not... You're not showing that you trust your children. You're just not. You're showing that you don't trust them, that you only want them to get the money when they're 55, and and they're struggling now. It just don't do that. I mean, there might be a reason not to trust your kids. I mean, I don't know. You might have a kid that's going to sniff it up his nose. I don't know. But don't put restrictions on it from the grave other than just because that's what some estate planning attorney says. Like, this is what we typically do. 25% at 30, 25% at 40, 20. Don't, don't do that. Or hell, don't wait until they're 60 years old to give it to them because then why not give it to them while you're alive so you can see it? Now, obviously, don't make yourself, don't fly coach so your kids can fly first class. That's what I always say. But if you got the cash and you got the resources and you know you got a struggling child and you know he's doing his best, just give him the friggin' money and say, hey, I want to help you out, son. Now, should you do that over and over and over again? No, I had a client up in uh, Rochester, and they kept, kept, kept providing their son capital to start these various business ventures to the point it was going to hurt their own retirement. They were going to run out of money. And uh, they were nice people, and i never forget, they were getting knocked on. Uh, some Catholic university was calling on them to donate. They wanted to give to their. They were giving their kids money. I'm like, look, I know you guys want to give, but at this stage, your retirement portfolios, is, is, you're not going to last. I know they want to give, and uh, I said, look, maybe set up a, uh, some kind of life insurance, a second-die life insurance to give to the Catholic Church. But at some point, you're going to have to cut these people off because you are going to run out of money because they still had a mortgage. Um, they still had pretty significant expenditures, too. But they just – and I, long story short, I'll never forget. They called me back about you know, a couple weeks later wanting, I think it was 25000 from his IRA to give directly to the Catholic University. 
And I, look, you're my do whatever you want. I said, oh, that's fine. And then uh, about 15,000, I mean, then a, a week or so later, they want another 15,000 to give uh, to their son to buy this van for I don't know, a carpet cleaning business or something like that. And I said, they just could not, st- they could not say no. I said, uh, and that's the drawback about giving to a hearse is going to hurt your, in this case, it's going to hurt the kid because he's not learning that at some point you got to go on your own. But that's the exception, not the rule. Uh, the rules that I've seen in financial planning and estate planning is that you, you withhold the joy you can provide to your children to your debt. You can't see it. And then your kids get the money when they're not as the same need for it. And they're sitting there thinking, oh man, I could have used this 15 years ago. Better to give with a warm hand than a cold one. What a great article. Anyway, as always, smash what you see. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, follow this guy, Mir, Mir Stabman. I'm going to see if I can't interview him because I think he's great. So we'll see you next time.